Father in heaven, I pray now that as we move into your word, the same spirit that has been upon this place would remain and abide. I pray that you would draw near in a, a very special way to help me be faithful to your truth. I pray for ears to hear. I pray that you do for each of these young people what you did for Lydia when you opened her heart to give heed to the word. I pray that it would sink down and take root and be unshakable. I pray that in a hundred years, Lord, the reverberations of the transformation of these days would be going on and memory would be strong. I pray that you would do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that any of us has been able to ask or think that you would come and you would ignite your name and your renown as our souls desire. Protect us now from the evil one. Protect us from pride and distraction. And fill us all with your Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth and love and passion for your name. Through Christ I pray. Amen. I want to begin by telling you some of the reasons that I'm here. One of the great advantages of being in a local church as a pastor for 16, 17 years is that over the months and years, the vision of the church and the vision of the pastor become one. And about a year ago, we produced a vision statement that goes like this. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And I think I can say without any hesitation that that's my life mission as well as the mission of Bethlehem Baptist Church. And so when I got an invitation and read about this conference, saw the word passion, saw the truth behind Isaiah 20, I forget now, 26.8, we wait for you. Your name and your renown is the desire of our soul, the passion of our soul. I was hooked. I want to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all of you and all the peoples of this world. So that was reason number one, that I'm here. Reason number two is that I want to be a little match set to the kindling of your joy. I want you to leave from this place thrilled and happy in God. And I want, you could call this a third point, it's really the two points brought together. I want you to see, I want you to see from scripture, I want you to experience that the first reason I'm here and the second reason I'm here are the same reason. They are one. 
that to spread a passion for the supremacy of God and to be happy in God are virtually identical. Because God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. There's the sentence that I'll come back to again and again and again. That God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. So the songs we've been singing and the thirst we've been expressing are ways of giving glory to God. Because the more we find our satisfaction in him, the more we drink deeply from him and eat at the banquet table, which is him, the more his worth and his all-sufficiency is magnified. So there's no competition, and this is the marvel, this is the gospel to me that I discovered in the year 1968, 69, 70, as God was doing a work in my life. There's no competition between God's passion to be glorified and your passion to be satisfied because they are one. Now, there's another way to put this reason why I'm here. I'm here to torch a glacier. I have in my mind a picture. Let me share it with you. It came out of Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, 12, it says, looking at the end of the age, Jesus says, Lawlessness will be multiplied and the love of many will grow cold. I'm scared to death of growing cold. I hate the thought that my love for God or my love for people would one day dry up or freeze up. And yet Jesus says it's coming. It's coming like a glacier across the world. So part of my expectation of the last days is that lawlessness will be multiplied and the love of many will grow cold. Now that could be a very bleak description of the last days. But if you keep reading in Matthew 24, down a verse, the next verse 13 says, but those who endure to the end will be saved. So somebody's going to endure. And the next verse says, and this gospel of the kingdom. Now paraphrase that. This gospel of spreading a passion for the supremacy of King Jesus this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Now put verse 12 alongside verse 14 and see if you feel the tension. Lawlessness will be multiplied and the love of many will grow cold. But... This gospel of the kingdom, of Christ's sovereign rule, will spread 
to all the nations and then the end will come. Now, there's a tension between those two verses. And the reason I know there is, is because it is not cold people who are going to take that gospel back to your campuses. It's not cold people who are going to get them to the unreached peoples of the world. Now, how do I know that? Because if you just go back up a couple of verses to verse 9, you find something in a prophetic word that is very, very different. It says, they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations on my account, Jesus says. Now, if that's true, if we will be delivered up to authorities in our missionary labor, if we will be killed, if we will be hated by every nation to which we go, I know one thing for sure, it isn't cold people that are delivering that message. It's white hot worshipers of King Jesus that'll get that done. And therefore what I see in verses nine to 14 of Matthew 24 is that as the end of the age draws near, there's going to be people who are getting ice cold. And there's going to be people who are white hot enough to lay down their lives for Jesus among all the peoples of the world. So my ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church and my arrival here is to torch a glacier. I gave this image one time in my church and a little girl, I don't know, six, seven years old, she was sitting there and I encouraged the kids in my church to draw my sermons. So if you're a kid, you can draw my sermon and show it to me afterwards. I get all kinds of good illustrations this way. She came up to me after the service <clears throat> and she said, here's what I saw. And it was a, a marvelous glacier. It had Minneapolis written on it. And it had a little stick man holding up a torch. And there's a hole in the glacier at the top. And over it was a big sunshine coming down through the hole. Now here's my eschatology in a nutshell. You wonder what your camp is going to look like when Jesus comes or what Austin or Minneapolis or wherever you're from is going to look like. The glacier is moving and a lot of people are growing cold towards God, drying up, freezing up. But there is nothing in the Bible about the end times that says Bethlehem Baptist Church or even Minneapolis, or say the University of Texas at Austin, has to be under that glacier. Nothing. If there are enough people with torches lit, white hot for God, torching the glacier, a big hole can be opened up over your campus, a big hole can be opened up over your local church, even over your city. And that's why I'm here. I want to lift my torch. Spurgeon used to say over there a hundred years ago in England when he preached the Metropolitan Tabernacle, 
people come to watch me burn. They come to take their little flickering torch and stick it in my torch and go out and burn for another week for Jesus. And I would be thrilled if you brought a flickering torch in here this morning and put it in my fire. That's why I'm here. Now, there's a foundation for what I want to do. My task here, as I've been asked, is to talk about living for the glory of God, for the passion for the supremacy of God. And I have two messages, this morning and tomorrow morning. And this morning is foundation and tomorrow is application. And the foundation is this. Your passion for the supremacy of God in all things is based squarely on God's passion for the supremacy of God in all things. Your God-centeredness, if it's going to last, if it's going to endure, has to be rooted in God's God-centeredness. If you want God to be supreme in your life, you have to see and believe and love the truth that God is supreme in the life of God. If you want God to be your treasure, like we've sung about here, so that you value God more than anything, you have to see and believe that God's treasure is God. That He treasures God more than He treasures anything. We may not withhold from God the highest pleasure in the universe, namely the worship of God. That's foundation. That's what I want to talk about today. And then tomorrow, I want to talk about your pursuit of joy in God. And that that pursuit is necessarily implied in God's pursuit of His glory in your life. Let me begin with a little story. I spoke at uh, Wheaton College, my alma mater, about, I don't know what it was, eight, nine years ago. First chance in uh, this big, chandeliered, blue, beautiful chapel. And I stood up and I said, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And all my friends who are up in the balcony just went, oh no. He blew it. His first chance in his own alma mater to speak to these students and come back after 20 years and he misquotes the Westminster Catechism right off the bat and says the chief end of God instead of the chief end of man. And to their great relief, I went on to say, I really meant that, and I really mean it this morning, that the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. I grew up in a home of an evangelist. My dad, Bill Piper, taught me from his, when I was real little, he taught me, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, 
whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do everything to the glory of God. But I never heard anybody say that God does everything to the glory of God. And that the root of my living for the glory of God is that God lives for the glory of God. I have never seen a Sunday school paper brought home that says God loves himself more than he loves you. And therein lies the only hope that he might love you unworthy as you are. Never read that in any Sunday school paper. That's why we're working on curriculum at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Most of us grew up in homes and in churches where we got excited about being Christians to the degree that we thought God was excited about us. Not to the degree that we got excited about a God-centered God. It's very easy in a man-centered world where self-esteem is the highest value to be a Christian to the degree that it buttresses what you would have done anyway without God. Who wouldn't be a Christian? Well, you're not a Christian if you only love what you would have loved without being confronted by the beauty of a God-centered God. If God is only a means to your self-advancement and exaltation, rather than your seeing in him something infinitely glorious as a God consumed with the manifestation of his glory, then you need to check your conversion. So this is a big reality check here in Austin in Passion 97. Very few people have ever said to me and shown me what I've now seen in the Bible, that God chose me for his glory. I remember teaching a class on Ephesians 1, 1976, in what we called interim at Bethel, Bethel College in those days on Ephesians, and working my way systematically through the first 14 verses of Ephesians and having my world just blown open again. Because three times, verse 6, verse 12, verse 14, it says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world and he predestined us to be his sons unto the praise of the glory of his grace. He chose you. Why? That his glory and grace might be praised and magnified. Your salvation is to glorify God. Your election is to glorify God. Your regeneration was to glorify God. Your justification was for the glory of God. Your sanctification is for the glory of God. And one day, your glorification will be an absorbance into the glory of God. You were created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone whom I created for my glory. God rescued his people Israel from Egypt for his glory. 
Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your ways or your wonderful works. They rebelled against you at the Red Sea. Yet you saved them for your namesake that you might make known your power and your glory. Psalm 106, verse 7. In other words, he split the Red Sea and saved his rebellious people so that, it says, he might make known his mighty power. And it spread all the way to Jericho and saved a prostitute. So that when they got there, and got ready to blow the trumpets. She was born again. Because she said, we heard your name and your renown. And one woman and her family believed in a God-centered God. And escaped destruction. God spared Israel in the wilderness over and over again. The house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness, Ezekiel says, quoting God, and thought, I thought I would pour out my wrath, but I acted for the sake of my name, lest it be profaned among the nations. And then finally, God sends them into judgment in Babylon, remember? And after 70 years, mercy warms to them. He will not divorce his covenant bride, and he brings them back. But why? What's the motive rooted in God's heart? Listen to it from Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's a God-centered motive for mercy. Jesus came into the world for what reason? Oh, how many times we have quoted John 3.16. And it is gloriously true. And before we're done... This morning, or at least tomorrow morning, you'll see that this emphasis right now and that emphasis that you've known for a long time probably are not at odds. But why did he come? Why did Jesus come? According to Romans 15, 8, he came for this reason. Christ became a servant to the circumcision to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ came to earth, clothed himself with flesh and died so that you would give glory to his Father for mercy. He came for his Father's sake. That's the main reason that he came. For his Father's glory. And his glory reaches its apex in the overflow of mercy. Listen to this word from Romans 3. God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood... To demonstrate 
God's righteousness. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous. That's why he died. He died to vindicate the righteousness of God who had passed over sins like David's adultery and murder. Did it ever trouble you that God just passed over it? David just went on being king. Well, it troubled Paul to the depth of his being that God is not righteous to pass over sins. And there wasn't just David. There was thousands of saints in the Old Testament and today whose sins he simply forgets and passes over. And Paul cried out, how can you be God and do that? How can you be righteous and do that? How can you be just and do that? How can you be worthy of worship and do that? If any judge in Austin did that, he'd be off the bench in a minute to acquit a child abuser, a rapist, a murderer. And you do it every day. So what kind of God are you? I mean, the cross is the solution to a mega theological problem. Namely, how can God be God and forgive sins? Christ came to vindicate God in the saving of people like you. Salvation is a grandly and gloriously God-centered thing. Why is he coming again? Listen to these words. Jesus is coming, folks. He is coming. And let me tell you why he's coming and what you can do when he comes so that you'll be ready and do it. First Thessalonians, I mean, second Thessalonians one nine, those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. You see those two things? He is coming to be glorified, magnified in his saints and to be marveled at. If you don't get started on that now, you won't be able to do it when he comes. This conference exists to light a fire in your bones and ignite a fire in your minds and in your hearts to get you ready to meet King Jesus so that you can continue throughout all eternity doing what he created you to do. Namely, marvel at him and magnify him. Magnify him. Not like a microscope. You know the difference between two kinds of magnification, don't you? There's telescope magnification and microscope magnification. And it's blasphemy to magnify God like a microscope. To magnify God like a microscope is to take something tiny and make it look bigger than it is. If you try to do that for God, you blaspheme. But a telescope puts its lens on unimaginable expanses of greatness and tries to just help them look like what they are. That's what a telescope is for. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. You look up in the sky at night, they just look like the 
pinpoint. That's not what they are. You know that. You're in college, right? They're big. They are really, really big. And they are hot. And you don't have a clue, except that once upon a time, somebody invented a telescope and they put their eye to it and they thought, it's bigger than the earth. It's millions of times bigger than the earth. Well, that's the way God is. Your life exists to telescope God's glory to your campus. That's a big calling. I'm going to talk about how tomorrow. But let me just say a few more things as we close this morning. Here's the, the key question I want to close with. Because I know it starts to rise. I've, I've said this truth that God is a God-centered God and that His God-centeredness is the root of my God-centeredness. I've said that for 20 years to people and the question begins to rise. This does not sound loving because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love seeks not its own. And you're telling us now for the last 15 minutes that God spends all of his time speaking, seeking his own. So, either God's not loving or you're a liar. And that's a big problem. So let me try to answer how it is that God is loving in seeking his own self-exaltation. I found the key in, in C.S. Lewis. If any of you have read Desiring God, you remember this quote because it was epoch-making, epoch-making for me. This quote from C.S. Lewis. Lewis, you remember, was a pagan till his late 20s. And he hated God's vanity. He said, every time he read the Psalms and the Psalms said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And he, he knew Christian doctrine that the Psalms were inspired. Jesus says the Holy Spirit spoke these Psalms. So he knew God is saying the Psalms. And so what he heard is God saying, praise me, praise me. And he said, it sounds like an old woman seeking compliments. That's what a quote from reflection on the Psalms. And then suddenly, God came into C.S. Lewis' life. And this is what he wrote. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. Unless sometimes we bring it in, bring shyness in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poets. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole more general difficulty with, with the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, even what we cannot help doing with regard to everything else we value. And then here comes the key sentences. 
I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not complete. I mean, the joy is not complete until it is expressed. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Now, that was a key for me that unlocked something with regard to how God can be loving and self-exalting in all that he does. It goes like this. Let me put the pieces together for you. If God is to love you, what must he give you? He must give you what's best for you. The best thing for you in all the universe is God. If he were to give you all health, best job, best spouse, best computer, best vacations, best success in any realm, and withhold himself, he would hate you. And if he gives you God and nothing besides, he loves you infinitely. I must have God for my enjoyment if God is to be loving to me. Now, Lewis has said, if God gives you himself to enjoy for all eternity, that joy will not come to consummation until you express it in praise. Therefore, for God to love you fully, he cannot be indifferent to whether you bring your joy to consummation through praise. Therefore, God must seek your praise if you are to be loved by him. Did that make sense? I wonder if I should run that by you again. That's the essence of my life. I believe it's the essence of the Bible. To love you, he must give you what's best for you. God is what's best for you. Thou dost show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures, pleasures forevermore. God gives himself to us for our pleasures. But Lewis has shown us that unless those pleasures find expression in praise to God, the pleasures are restricted And therefore, God, not wanting to restrict your pleasure in any way, says, praise me. In everything you do, praise me. In everything you do, exalt me. In everything you do, have a passion for my supremacy. Which simply means that God's passion to be glorified and your passion to rejoice and be satisfied are not at odds. They come together. And God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Now, that's the end of this morning's talk. Let me tell you where we're going with this tomorrow so you can be praying toward it. And so you can, I hope, come and let me finish because I'm not finished. If this is true, that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, and therefore, there is no tension or contradiction between your satisfaction in him and his glorification in you. Then the vocation of your life is to pursue your pleasure. I call it 
Christian hedonism. And I want to talk to you tomorrow about how you do that and why it will transform your relationships, your campuses, your worship, and your eternity. Father in heaven, would you take these few words and use them to shape our minds around your great and glorious God-centered passion for God. Fold us into it, I pray. Draw us up out of our man-centeredness into your glorious God-centeredness and show us that the only possible way that an infinitely glorious, all-sufficient, self-sufficient God can love is by drawing us into the enjoyment of his enjoyment of himself. Holy Spirit, you are that joy. Fill us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.